chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 8 through 16. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we gather around your word this morning, Father, we do ask that your spirit would give us understanding. We come to listen to you and to learn of your ways in our world. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have a Bible, you may turn with me to Luke chapter 2. It's where we will frame our thoughts this morning. And as a middle school student, I was assigned to read William Golding's short novel, The Lord of the Flies. I'll readily admit that I was captivated by the story, but not because of Golding's purpose for the novel. The mere subject of boys being marooned on a desert island without adult supervision and getting to kill things with sticks was just captivating. I loved it. It wasn't until many years later revisiting Golden's novel that I began to understand his intent and what the import he was wanting us to reflect on. The book does tell the story of British boys, two age groups marooned on an island alone without any adults. There's a group of 10 to 12-year-olds and a group of 5 to 6-year-olds. At the start, they lived together with a common purpose. They wanted to be rescued. They were lighting signal fires, and they even elected a government. Their leader was one of the boys named Ralph. Ralph organized the signal fire and kept everyone motivated, but there was discouragement that set in. After days and weeks of not being rescued, some began to grumble. One of the boys named Jack began to incite his own rebellion. He didn't care for Ralph or his leadership style, and so Jack wanted to take over. He wouldn't light the signal fire, and so he began to draw some of the other boys into his party. They ended up moving out of the camp, and they increasingly become more violent. They were a war party, a hunting party, increasingly becoming more savage and more unreasonable. They even end up killing three of the different boys, boys they had known, boys they had grown up with. As you sit with the story, you feel the horror and the tragedy. At one point, Golding puts his main question, the question that he's trying to drive home for all of us, he puts it on the lips of one of his main characters, Piggy. Piggy asks, what makes things break up like they do? 
This is what Golding wanted to understand about the human condition, about our societies as a whole. Remember, he's writing in the wake of World War II, where one million, six million people have been exterminated. Atom bombs have been dropped. It's horrific, the loss. And he's looking at the world asking, why is the world so broken up the way that it is? He wanted to trace the defects of human society and ask whether it had to do with human nature. Later in his career, he was asked about the Lord of the Rings. He commented, the theme of the Lord of the, oh, excuse me, Lord of the Flies. (laughs) You can tell what world I live in. The theme of the Lord of the Flies is grief, sheer grief. Grief, grief, grief. Golden was wrestling with the sheer brokenness of the world. And all he could see was grief. And it is into the middle of that grief that the angels surround as a multitude the shepherds and they sing a song. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That song is sung into the middle of a broken and fractured world. And the angels announced that there was one coming and that he had arrived and he was the one who was set to undo all the world's brokenness and sin, that he would bring peace. And in the Bible, the word peace doesn't just mean relational harmony. It means something far greater and far deeper. It means wholeness and well-being of life across every sphere. That humans are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another and reconciled to the world around them. That this was the peace that Jesus comes into the world to bring. But this is difficult. When you look at this great Christian hope that the angels have announced, and you look at human history, it's easy to see that those two things don't rhyme. That our great Christian hope and then our human history tell very different stories. American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he felt these tensions. Writing a poem in the middle of the Civil War titled Christmas Bells, listen to what he said. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He felt the dissonance. And anyone who is truly hoped as a Christian feels the dissonance because we feel the same tensions today. The brokenness of the world that existed in the first century has existed since Adam and Eve and their original rebellion against God that we, be, that we read at the beginning of our service. This is our world. It continues to be horribly fractured. There is greed. There is fear. There is scarcity. There is unfaithfulness. There is anger and bitterness and malice. There's every form of sin that we can imagine, and it lives within us as well. Evil cuts down the middle of every human heart. Even the casual observer, free from religious commitment, 
normally admits that things are not right. And it is into the middle of this mess, the middle of all that chaotic grief and sadness, that Christians continue to insist that the one hope of our world lies in Jesus, that he is the one who can bring peace and wholeness. And the main question is why? Why on the other side of all the tragedy, why do Christians continue to hope that this one can bring peace and wholeness and well-being into our world? And in Luke chapter 2, we see that there's one primary reason. One reason that Christians continue to hope. And it is simply this, that Jesus' entrance into our world is God's decision to intervene. That when Jesus enters into the world, God has made a decision to take up our cause and intervene in the history of things as broken as they are. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 10, the angel announces, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And the angel uses a technical term from the world of the first century, good news of great joy for all the people. We also translate that word good news, gospel. This is all it means. It's good news. And there was common usage of that word gospel in the world that Jesus was born into. It was typically used by the Roman imperial family, in fact. That the Roman imperial family, when something happened, a child was born, particularly a son, they would publish a gospel. And that gospel would go out to the entire empire announcing the birth of a son, that something had happened in Rome that was going to then change the world. That was how gospels worked. It was an announcement. Gospels were also published by the Roman emperor when there was a victory in battle. Rome won, and so a gospel would be published announcing the good news that the military had been victorious. A gospel told of something that had happened that was going to change the direction of the world. The angel announces gospel, good news. And that good news is not a set of instructions for you to follow. That good news is not a set of rules for you. It's also not an invitation to a revolution to sanitize the world. The good news is that God is sending his son to redeem and save the world. And that includes you. That he's reconciling heaven and earth, that he's making all things right. And that the hope of this project does not lie with human beings. And friends, this is why Christians can hope today. Because God doesn't leave his lot with sinful and broken humanity. No, God enters into that condition in order to undo it, to nullify it, to break it in half, to destroy it. And that's why Christians hope. Because God has made decision. He has announced his news. An event has happened that it is irreversible. He has established the peace, and now we await the final great day of peace. 
The question left for us is how did he do it though? How did he establish the peace? Because you see, Luke was very fluent in the world of Greco-Roman literature. And not only was the word gospel currently used, but the word peace was as well. There was this large agreement called the Pax Romana, that is just the peace of Rome. Rome, at this point in history, established a massive empire all around the Mediterranean world, uniting people of different creeds and classes and cultures and colors in a way that had never been done before, all under the profession that Caesar is Lord. He was their savior. These were the, this was the language of the Roman Empire. And Caesar used one very blunt instrument to hold the unity of the empire together. It was the Roman military machine. And so the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was bought by your submission to Caesar being your Lord. That was how peace worked in the world that Jesus was born into. It was bought by your submission. But Jesus' peace works differently. You see, it's not bought by your submission. It's bought by his. And this gentle story that we have read of the birth of Jesus is one of submission, where Jesus makes himself nothing, and he becomes a man. He laid aside all his rights and prerogatives and privileges, and he becomes incarnate. He submitted throughout his life, being obedient to his father, and then we find this especially on display in the final days of his life, in Gethsemane, he says, not my will but yours be done, despite the great cost that was impending upon him. And then on the cross, in Luke 23, Jesus cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Father, even though I'm being unjustly accused, even though I'm wrongfully dying here, I trust you to vindicate me. And we read in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus had been wrapped in linen cloths and laid in a manger. At the end of chapter 23 and verse 53, Luke tells us once again that Jesus was wrapped in linen cloths and he was laid in a newly cut tomb. This is the bracket of Luke's story. Jesus' humility and submission Humility in becoming a man, and then humility in going down into death. And Paul tells us that it is through the blood of Jesus that peace has been won in Colossians 1. That heaven and earth have been reconciled. That things have been made right. But why does it work? In the Lord of the Flies... Jack recruits almost all the legion of boys onto his side. Ralph, the good leader who had sought to do the right thing, is then under threat of losing his life. Jack attempts to kill him, chases him into the forest, and Ralph hides. He's hiding in the dense underbrush. And so Jack instructs his minions to light the forest on fire. They begin chasing Ralph. Finally, there's nowhere left for him to go. 
He stumbles out onto the beach, running as fast as he can. He can hear the boys chasing him with their ulation cries, thirsty for blood. Jack stumbles and falls. He feels a presence standing over him. He covers his head, believing that the death blow was about to fall. He looks up, and there is a British naval officer. His boat sitting off in the background. And he said, well, I saw the signal fire that you boys had lit. You had lit a signal fire and there's a massive smoke cloud and so we were able to see it and we've come to rescue you. And do you see it? What the boys meant for violence, they lit the fire not to save themselves. They lit the fire to kill Ralph. It was an instrument of their violence. They wanted to undo Ralph and destroy him. But that act of violence became the source of their salvation, of their deliverance. And friends, this is exactly how the Christian gospel works as well. That in all our hatred and ugliness, as those who've been separated from God and alienated from him, we put the one good and righteous man to death to do away with him because we couldn't handle him. But all of our violence has become the source of our salvation. Putting him to death, he then went down into death and was raised, conquering it and destroying it. And he breaks the power of sin at that crucial moment. And this is God's good news. That that one who was raised from the dead is the Lord and the King, the one who rules over everything. And that's the story that we read. That what we meant for evil, God used for incredible good. God is determined to work out his purposes. He has made that decision. Nothing can unwind it. And no matter how strong the wrong in our world is, that God is unwinding it. And one day, that Jesus will return to make everything right. That all the stain of sin will be removed. That all the sad things will become untrue. That's the great Christian hope. And friends, we look in faith to this Jesus who has ended the hostility by his blood and promises to return. That's the one we celebrate. That's the story we enjoy today. That is why we bring our best to him, because he's given everything to us.